Well, we had a request for an interesting topic. Uh, I was asked to speak on uh, polygamy and concubines, and primarily the uh, context of the conversation with the individual was as they were reading through the Old Testament. And many have wondered about uh, concubines and polygamy. Uh, and some have really asked the question, why is it that God would allow polygamy and why would He allow concubines? Now, let me start off by giving just a couple of definitions. Let's start off with polygamy. I think probably most people know what polygamy is. That is marrying or having more than one wife or one husband. Uh, sometimes when you look at people who are in polygamous relationships, Sometimes both are, depending on what country you're in, both are legal wives. Sometimes what you find more common here in the United States is one is a legal wife and then the other ones are simply uh, those they were married to in a religious ceremony. And that's because polygamy has been outlawed in the United States. Uh, and, and this would be seen probably in shows that you might have seen on TV like Sister Wives. They follow uh, a group of Mormons. It's one man married to multiple wives. Uh, one of them he's married to legally. The rest of them he simply was married to uh, in religious ceremonies because it's not, again, allowed to, to, uh, for people to be married to multiple spouses here in the United States. Uh, and it's not just amongst the Mormons. There are some other groups that do teach that you can have uh, multiple spouses. Some people who are polygamous do it for religious reasons. Some do it for non-religious reasons. There's a fairly quick definition of polygamy uh, and really some application to today. Now, concubines is a little different. Most often when you hear the word concubine, uh, that is considered a partner that is simply for the purpose of sexual intercourse or for the purpose of providing children uh, for example, when a spouse would be unable. It would be very similar to a surrogate mother today having a baby for another mother who was unable to have a child. Sometimes we find that concubines were slaves uh, and they were taken as sexual partners. Uh, sometimes it was voluntarily, sometimes it was involuntarily, depending on what group you're looking at and so forth. Now, when you go back and you begin to look at the Jewish men who took concubines, uh, it's interesting that the concubine was to have the same full rights and status as the wife. Let me pause for a minute. That's for the Jewish men. Now, in a lot of other cultures, it was not like that. You had men would have their social wife, the main wife, uh, and then they would have their concubines on the side who were simply for the purpose of, of sexual relation. Uh, they didn't, in many cases, take them out into public. They weren't seen with them. Uh, they were always seen with their, with their uh, what I would call their social wife. Uh, but for the Jewish man, the concubine was to have the same full rights as his initial spouse. I'll, I'll phrase it that way. And interestingly, as I was even looking through this today at lunch and studying on the topic, I found where as of recently, within the last few months, and then again back a few years ago, where there were a number of Jewish rabbis who were encouraging the use of concubines uh, for those married couples where the wife found herself unable to have children. So again, very similar to the idea of, of maybe paying a surrogate mother 
uh, where normally you hear about that taking place by like in, in vitro um, fertilization or something like that, they're actually suggesting that men would go ahead and take a concubine uh, as a sexual partner so that they could procreate with that female if their wife could not. And again, that's being promoted amongst rabbis even today. Interestingly enough, as I read that, I continued to read different accounts. I read an article by uh, a non-Christian. It was specifically on polygamy and concubines, and it had so much that was wrong in it. But what I did find was an interesting quote from them, and they stated that procreation was more important than love in religion. Now, that couldn't be any farther from the truth. But actually, if, if that is what people thought, the idea that procreation is more important than love in religion, that could actually lead somebody to want to be in a uh, polygamous marriage uh, so they could have more children, or it, would, it, it could cause someone to want to have concubines so that they could have more children. But as I thought about it, even the extreme opposite view that marriage is all about sex, that could cause people to want to have a polygamous marriage, right? If I have more spouses, I can have more sexual partners or it could cause someone to have uh, the desire to have concubines. So whether you think that sex is all about procreation and not about um, love or sex, that could, cause, that could cause one to want to be in a polygamous marriage or have concubines. But if you think marriage is simply all about sex, that would do the same thing. So it, there's not a very good balance there. And the quote that I took from that person couldn't be any further from the truth. Now, many people, when you talk about concubines and polygamy, they have stated that the Bible nowhere gives any type of a statement condemning concubines, and yet there is a condemnation that can be inferred from the very beginning of the Old Testament, and it's reconfirmed in the New Testament when the covenant, when the covenant marriage bond is described by inspiration and then addressed by Jesus. Now, Jesus quotes directly from the Old Testament, and I'll get there in a minute, but I'm going to go on over to Matthew 19, uh, verses 3 through 9. What I want to do as we look at concubines and polygamy is I want to set those to the side for a minute and actually look at what does the Bible actually say a marriage is and should entail. And if we do that, starting at the beginning, then we can get an understanding about the purpose that men chose to have uh, multiple wives or be polygamous, and why men also chose to have concubines. Let's notice what Jesus states when he is asked about specifically divorce. But again, that's relating back to the marriage bond. So let's start there. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read, so Jesus is pointing them back to the very beginning of the Old Testament, that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. One man is going to cleave to his one wife. Okay? He says, And they twain, those two, that man and that wife, they shall be one flesh. All right, we're seeing all kinds of problems here already just as we begin to look at it. One man and one woman in marriage, those two can become one flesh. We're talking about the act of, of sexual intimacy. It's even more than that, but the act of sexual intimacy, right? So multiple partners right off the bat, that totally contradicts what Jesus is saying here as he's quoting from Genesis 2, uh, 22 through 24. He goes on. 
Wherefore they are no more twain or two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Right? They can't separate that, uh, and man doesn't have the right, the right to violate that one flesh. Will man do that? Well, yes, they will. Sometimes they choose to do it themselves. Uh, sometimes they even think legal courts can do it today. He says, neither one of you guys have a right to do that. They say unto him, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Why was Moses allowing uh, divorce, right? Why did men want divorce? He goes on, verse 8. He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts. Men had hard hearts towards their spouses, and it caused them to divorce. Let me pause for just a second. Can you imagine a spouse having a hard heart towards his wife, uh, not being enthralled with her anymore? like he was when he married her and deciding that he wants to have two wives, right? Or, or maybe thinking, my wife doesn't satisfy me anymore, but I want to have a concubine. Again, it comes from this idea of a hard heart. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, right? Divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Let me pause. What about polygamy? Well, but from the beginning, it was not so. What about concubines? From the beginning, it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication. What's fornication? Well, that's here in the context, it's adultery. Fornication is having sex with any person who is not your spouse, right? Well, what makes up your spouse? Well, remember again, it's one man and one woman. So if a man is having sex with anyone besides that one woman that he initially married, that's fornication, right? Whether it's a polygamous relationship or whether it's... Uh, whether it's a concubine. Let's keep going. Except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, all right, you can't, you can't just go out and marry another, right? Committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. All right, so Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, from the original design for marriage, the covenant marriage bond, as we have recorded at the beginning. Now, I'm going to go back to Genesis 2, 22 through 24. Now, remember this. This is from the very beginning, all right? And so we need to think about all these polygamous marriages we read about in the Old Testament and all these people who had concubines. That came after Genesis 2, 22 through 24. So let's notice again the standard. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. That's exactly what Jesus said. These two are going to be one flesh. I, I really can just imagine the excitement in Adam's voice as he's saying, this is woman, and he gets an understanding that this is his helpmeet. This is going to be his his bride. In this passage, God establishes His model for marriage. Uh, and this was in place at the time, as I've already said, for all those who chose to be polygamous or chose to have concubines. Right? This was the law that was in place. Let's start off by just saying this. Polygamy and concubines were never authorized nor the intent of God. The intent was for one man and one woman to become flesh. You can't get around that. And so I think so far when we begin to ask the question, why did, 
why did men have multiple wives and why, why did men have concubines, I think in reality so far it's pretty easy to understand. God's law from the very beginning was monogamy until death, right? One flesh, one husband, one wife, until one of you dies. And you still normally hear that recited when people get married, right? Genesis 2, 22 through 24 also dealt with a number of other uh, issues related to marriage and sexuality. It is the basis for two of the Ten Commandments, which we later uh, are given. One, don't commit adultery, right? You're not supposed to be having sex with anybody to whom you are not married. Now remember again, what was marriage derived from? Well, marriage was derived from one man and one woman. That is a marriage, right? We can't simply say that one man plus two women is a marriage because that's not what we find. We find one man and one woman. Even though you say you're marrying another woman, is that marriage even, even accepted? That was one of the commandments given. The second one was don't covet your neighbor's wife, right? Don't lust after another woman. You have, you have your spouse that you're already one flesh with. You have no right to be lusting after somebody else's spouse. Or even if they're not married, you don't have the right to be lusting after them. Right? That's going to lead to things like polygamy and like uh, concubines. So Genesis 2.22 deals with the fact that um, there's a number of issues regarding marriage that need to be understood. Right? It's the basis for the biblical teaching on premarital sex, right? Don't do it. You're only allowed to have sex with the person you're married to. It's also the basis for the biblical teaching on homosexuality. Was never authorized. Uh, sex is only permitted for a husband and a wife, right? One flesh. Uh, that does not include a husband and a husband or a wife and a wife. That's not even a marriage. Even though people call it marriage, that's not a marriage. Uh, they can call that a relationship uh, or a number of other terms, but that's not a marriage according to the Bible. It also deals with the fact of adultery, right? If sex is only permitted between a husband and a wife, then sex is not permitted between a husband and somebody else, right? That's not their wife, or a wife and some other man. That's not her husband. Again, so... Genesis 2.22 sets precedent really for premarital sex, for homosexuality, for adultery, and we get it. Sex is only allowed for two people, a man and a woman, who are married. And again, remember that, one man and one woman. And therefore, just from Genesis 2.22 and 24, we get an understanding that premarital sex is not okay, adultery is not okay, and homosexuality is not okay. All of those are unauthorized sexual practices, which again, I have to point you towards the idea of a polygamous marriage, multiple spouses. Uh, that's not what a marriage is in the Bible. And two, the idea of a concubine. Well, a concubine's not your wife. Okay, so we've got a number of, of issues as we begin to break this down and we set precedent for what a marriage is. If God's plan for the marriage was carried out, this should have stopped the need or the desire for polygamy or for a concubine. I, I would say it should stop 99%. I always hear in my mind the naysayer who says, well, there may have been people in the Old Testament who could not uh, have a child, and, and therefore it was, it was acceptable for them to take a concubine so that they could have a child. 
Uh, I'm not quite sure how that really bypasses God's law and the fact that you're not supposed to have sex with someone who's not your spouse. But I can hear people in my mind saying that. So let me go back and say it again. If God's plan for the marriage was carried out, this should have stopped virtually all need for multiple wives and or for concubines. Now, I'm going to go on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 because Paul really talks about marriage. And again, if this was understood, again, you wouldn't have, for all those people today who are in polygamous marriages or relationships or whatever you want to call it, or for those really that have concubines, if they have a marriage like Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 7, they really shouldn't have any need for any of that. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 2, chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. Nevertheless, he's talking to Christians here, to avoid fornication, having sex with someone you're not married to, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Again, notice both of those were singular. You're only allowed one, right? One husband or one wife. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, right, your necessary duty, and likewise also the wife unto the husband, right, also her uh, providing the necessary duty. W what's he talking about? He goes on. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other. What's he talking about? He's talking about due benevolence. He's talking about the intimate relationship within the marriage. Defraud ye not one the other regarding this intimate relationship, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. All right, so God's intent from the very beginning, as we've already shown, was for sexual activity to be simply between a husband and a wife. Um, a, a husband should be sexually fulfilled and he shouldn't desire another wife. Uh, he should be sexually fulfilled and not desire a concubine or multiple women on the side, right? That's the idea here of the marriage. Both the husband and the wife are to be sexually fulfilled. And the reason he says here is so that you can avoid fornication, right? This would also be the reason that we would avoid adultery. So Paul never speaks about polygamy. He doesn't talk about concubines. And again, the reason is, is because that was never God's intended plan from the very beginning. Now, I want to go back for just a second and recall that the Pharisees, they had asked Jesus in Matthew 19, 3, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And the answer Jesus gave clearly was no. No, you guys are, you have a serious misconception here about marriage and divorce. Now, if some of the Jews had it wrong on marriage and divorce, what would make you think that they wouldn't get it wrong when it comes to polygamy and or having concubines, right? They don't even have a basic understanding about when a man is allowed to put away his spouse or his wife or when a wife's allowed to put away her husband. They don't even have that basic fundamental figured out. So what would make you think for a second that they're completely right and choosing to be in polygamous relationships or to have concubines? Just as divorce was never the intent for marriage, neither was polygamy nor concubines part of the pattern for marriage. That was never God's intended uh, design for marriage. Now, I'm going to go back and, and try to break it down a little bit more. We're going to look at some examples here. But when, when God's people wanted a king for themselves, it was very clear that God had expected those kings to be upright morally. And I say that because if, 
if one can't lead and control themselves, how in the world would you expect them to lead and to control an entire nation? Well, let's go over to Deuteronomy 17, 17 and notice what we find regarding kings. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself. He shouldn't have multiple wives. That his heart turn not away, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. He's not to have multiple wives, right? He's not to lust after multiple women and marry them. He's also not to be uh, one that lusts over silver and gold. Well, we've already set the standard and looked at the standard back in the Old Testament regarding marriage. And here you simply see the confirmation that the king is not to be lusting after and having multiple wives, right? It's, it's something that many will come here and they'll say, but the kings did have multiple wives. Well, we'll address a little bit of that. The primary problem as we look at polygamy, especially here from Deuteronomy 17, 17, seems to be at least obvious to me. It's not possible for one man to become one flesh with more than one woman. And Jesus made that very clear too, just as Genesis 2.24 does. Man is to become one flesh with his one bride. How does a man become one flesh with multiple, with multiple bride, brides? Or how does a woman become one flesh with multiple husbands? Again, it, it totally contradicts the pattern uh, that we have from the beginning for marriage. And that's a huge problem here. The idea, again, is, is when a man and a woman get married, they're supposed to be fully committed one to the other, right? They're one flesh, fully committed uh, to each spouse independently, right? But that's not what we find when we look at polygamy or even with concubines. How is a man to be fully committed to multiple wives. Uh, I have not watched that show really, but I've seen a little bit of portions of Sister Wives. And guys, those wives are constantly bickering back and forth. And I will tell you, they're not very happy one with the other. They get jealous all the time. They're all married to the same man. Uh, again, I haven't watched lots of it, but he basically spends different nights at each of those wives' houses, I guess as he's making the routes there. Uh, and you don't think for a second that one of those wives is angry that her husband, or at least she calls him a husband, is sleeping in bed with another wife and actually having sex with another woman. And even though they all call themselves sister wives, they're all sharing the same man. There's no way he can be committed to each of those women the same. And, and I'm going to have to say, you gotta have, he's going to have to have a favorite. He's going to have to have a favorite. I only have one favorite wife, just one, because I only have one wife. On sister wives, he has multiple wives. So which one's his favorite? And don't think for a second that it's not going to cause issues because he can't be fully committed to uh, multiple wives. We also get another reason here. He says, Neither shall he multiply wives to himself that his heart turn not away. It is very possible that a man could have his heart turned away, not only from his actually uh, God-permitted first wife, right, towards other wives or towards concubines, but as we're going to notice here in a minute, even towards his faith. Now, as we look at the idea of polygamy and concubines, I think the, the most well-known biblical example of polygamy is probably Solomon. Uh, and the Bible tells us that he had 700 wives and he had 300 concubines, right? A thousand. A thousand women. Uh, which one was his favorite? I really don't know, but I'm sure he probably had one. Uh, and, and I'm not going to go back and address it, but when you go back and you read Ecclesiastes, he is talking about all the things he tried 
that didn't work. He had tried so many things and sought after so many things thinking they would fulfill him, and they didn't. And guys, I'm going to tell you, a thousand wives isn't going to fulfill you either. It's, nothing, it's going to be nothing more than a headache. Now, as you talk about these thousand wives, and many don't realize this, most of these marriages that Solomon was involved in were merely for political purposes, and the idea was it was an effort to try to form different alliances and unite different nations, really as a way to keep the peace amongst all these different nations uh, and these, these different uh, groups of people. And so that was really the idea for many of the marriages that Solomon was involved in. They were really just political alliances or actually really kind of just, just uh, chessboard moves where you know I'm placing myself into a position where he's not going to attack me because one of his daughters is one of my wives, right? And he's not going to attack me because one of his daughters is one of my concubines or, again, one of my wives. So they were really nothing more than political moves on a chessboard. Uh, and so... Here we look at this with King Solomon, and he loved a lot of different foreign women. Uh, you had the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, you had the Sidonians, and you had the Hittites. And many of these women were from nations that the Lord had actually told the Israelites they weren't allowed to marry women from. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 3. And here's the thing, Solomon did it anyways, all right? Just like people in the Old Testament would put away their wives. It wasn't the intent from the beginning, but they did it anyways. Listen to 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 4. But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you. Right? Neither the husband, neither the man nor the woman were to marry. Right? You're not supposed to go into them, sexual intercourse, and they're not supposed to come into you. Again, sexual intercourse. He says, why, why, should, why is this the case? He says, uh, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord, his God, as was the heart of David, his father. Why shouldn't these Jews be marrying these Gentiles? Well, let's be real logical about this. Um, if a person is a Catholic and they marry a Baptist, how are they going to raise their children? We're we going to call them... Bathlick or, or uh, Captus, I don't know. You're going to mix the two religions? It causes serious confusion. Uh, I used to actually know a, a couple. He, she was a Catholic and he was a Jew. And guys, they raised one of their children as a Jew and they raised the other one as a Catholic. That is confusing. Just as confusing as a Baptist marrying a Catholic, trying to raise a child, and they don't know what to do or who to follow. Same thing with a, marrying a Methodist and a Pentecostal. Which one are you going to follow, right? The children, they're just totally confused. And that's the exact same thing you have happening when you had a Jew marrying a Gentile, right? They didn't worship, they didn't worship God. They worshiped their Gentile gods, and yet they're being taught that there's just the one God. So what are their children going to be raised up, in, and what are they going to do? Are, are they going to be faithful? Well, most likely not, and that's part of the reason here, right? 
That's why they shouldn't be marrying other different faiths. It causes a lot of religious confusion. Now Solomon, he clearly disobeyed here. There is no question that he disobeyed by marrying multiple wives, actually from uh, other nations. He wasn't permitted to do either one of those. We saw the verse where the kings were not to take multiple wives. We saw the verse where the Jews were told there are certain nations that you are not to be marrying from. But guess what? He did it anyways. Polygamy wasn't ever authorized. Uh, so what would make anyone think that the concubines were approved or that polygamous marriages were approved? Uh, neither one of those was ever the intent of God. Now, did they do it? Yes, they did. And we'll kind of explain that here in a second. But uh, out of all the different examples you can look for in the Bible of concubines and polygamy, you're never going to find where any of those marriages with multiple spouses ever, ever resulted in God's blessing. As a matter of fact, if you go back and look at it, there were major problems in every one of the examples that you can look at. And let's just mention a couple of them here. We'll go back to one of them. We'll talk about Abraham and, Abraham and Sarah. And this kind of alludes back to uh, what I mentioned earlier about, well, people could kind of see in their mind back in the Old Testament times, you know, if a woman couldn't have a child, wouldn't it make sense to have a concubine to be able to have a child? Well, I think that's what makes sense to people because that's what made sense to Abraham, right? When Abraham and Sarah were not able to conceive, uh, Abraham was, I think, greatly concerned because he had already been told that he was going to be the father of a great nation. Well, it's hard to be a father of a great nation when your wife can't have a child. And, and so Abraham lies with Sarah's Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and has a child. Uh, in essence, Hagar becomes Abraham's concubine. Now, this caused serious resentment from Sarah. Later, we find resentment from Hagar when Sarah actually conceives. Okay? Here's what's interesting. Abraham was a man of faith. You can go look at Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, uh, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, but we see that he had flaws in his faith. And choosing a concubine to try to fulfill God's promise of a seed line was just one of those lapses in faith. Abraham was trying to fulfill a promise of God through his own thinking and his own rationale. His own thinking was, my wife can't conceive a child, and so maybe I can help God out. I'll have a concubine. That concubine uh, will allow me to have a child, right? Man's thoughts are not always, and man's ways are not always the thoughts and the ways of God, Isaiah 55, 8. So not, only did not, so not only did having a concubine not fulfill the seed line promise, which was fulfilled through his wife Sarah and resulted in the birth of Isaac, but the result of the union that he had with Hagar actually resulted in the child Ishmael, who becomes the father of the Arab nations. And that really begins the battle which... It initially took place between Ishmael, who hated Isaac, and it continues on today uh, in the exact same way. Right? It continues on today in the fact that the Arab nations, the majority of them are Islamic, uh, and they hate those who came through the spiritual, uh, those who were of the spiritual seed line of Ishmael, those who claim to be at least the uh, the 
Islamics, they hate those who are of the spiritual seed line of the seed of Christ, who are Christians. And just as Ishmael hated Isaac, Muslims today hate Christians. Right? And so there was a, there was a serious uh, effect of what Abraham did here. And I don't think he could ever see that at that point. But him trying to fulfill the seed line by doing it man's way, by taking a concubine, not only didn't fulfill the seed line promise that he was given, it literally caused those to be in opposition to, to those who were followers of what would result from the seed line of Christ. Well, another example would be David. We, we looked at Solomon first. Now let's talk about David. And you may ask yourself this, how did Solomon even get the idea that it was okay to have multiple wives? Well, you know, oftentimes children do what their parents do. Uh, another example is David. David, again, was a man after God's own heart, and yet you go back and you start to learn about David, and David had multiple wives, uh, of which I, I, it appears to me from from uh, my research, Bathsheba was the last wife he had. Uh, but as a result of all of the wives that David had, his whole, his whole family had a number of issues and was all messed up. And you, you could maybe come to the idea of how it was that Solomon had as many issues as he did. Uh, but his life was such a mess due to his... Um, killing Uriah the Hittite and then taking his wife, uh, that he ended up losing an infant. He had one son who forced himself or raped his sister. He had other sons who were killing each other as they're trying to take control of the throne. And David paid for his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba fourfold, 2 Samuel 12, 6, just as Nathan the prophet had said. He had a number of issues because, because of the things he had done and the fact that he had multiple wives. God had clearly condemned divorce and adultery. So many, again, they go back and they wonder why was polygamy and why were concubines allowed when it is a form of adultery? I don't really know that I'd word the question that way, but I saw a lot of people asking that question. Why was it allowed? I would go so far as to say that polygamy was probably, uh, polygamy and concubines was probably very much like divorce. Uh, even though that God had said that marriage was between one man and one woman, Genesis 2.24, and even though the only reason you could put a spouse away was for adultery, it wasn't very long before we read about wicked men taking multiple wives for themselves, Genesis 4.19. That's, that's just two chapters after we're told what a marriage should be, uh, one man and one woman. You go two chapters over and you've got somebody taking multiple wives. We just looked at Genesis 16, and you've got Abraham taking a concubine. Again, not very many chapters passed uh, when we've actually been told there in the Old Testament of what a marriage is supposed to have been. Now, again, that was a number of years past that, but they should have known. Uh, it, the point really is this. It didn't take man very long to deviate from God's plan. You had people divorcing their spouses. You had people taking multiple spouses, and you had people taking concubines. It didn't take long for man to start to deviate into what we would just call unscriptural sexual practices uh, and ideas on marriage. Polygamy wasn't just among the Jews. We find that polygamy was very common in human society amongst a number of nations. And again, they all had different variations. Some people were involved with concubines simply for sex. Some actually uh, 
the concubines were really looked at as being a, a second or an additional spouse. But it was very common, and of which the Jews were just one of those nations that were not following the command and the pattern given by God regarding the covenant marriage bond. It's one man, it's one woman for life. As a matter of fact, we can see just by looking around today how self-willed and rebellious people are even in our own society. You know, we, we have people today who are polygamists. I've already mentioned you can watch shows on TV about it. You can watch that show called Sister Wives, and you can see that people are um, trying to be polygamous, even though the United States has outlawed it. Uh, and yet you still have people like on the show Sister Wives who are they're living in secret or they've legally found a way to get around a polygamous marriage, right? You're allowed to live with a person who's not your spouse, um, even if you're not married to them. And so you can have a spouse you've married legally, and you can have other spouses you've married in a religious ceremony, you can call them all your wives or your spouses, even though you're really only legal, legally married to one. And, and you might say, well, I mean, those are just the extreme groups. I know of a man who, uh, I know of a man who actually went to the same school I went to uh, to become a minister, who uh, married two different wives. He had one living in two different towns. Uh, and guys, he knew very clear, clear and well that that was never the intent uh, of God for man to have two spouses, uh, but he did it in anyways. He did it anyways. He was just like a number of these other people. And you may think, you've got people even within the churches of Christ who've done stuff like this? Yes, we do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't condone it. Uh, the Bible doesn't authorize it, but even within the church we've seen where this has happened. And it's not just polygamous marriages. I got online today and I began to look because I had a conversation with a gentleman the other day about what's called polyamorous relationships. It's becoming very common. It means to have an open or an intimate or a romantic relationship with more than one person at a time. And let me pause for a minute, guys. I don't care how you break that down. That is, that's fornication. Uh, if, you're mar if you're married to one person and then you have other people who either just live with you that you're having sexual relationships with, or even if you call them your spouses, again, that is still fornication. But you have what's called polyamorous, and the definition, when I went back and looked this up today, I did it on my phone. I certainly wouldn't look this up at work on the computer. Uh, but it can be a combination of people who are heterosexual, homosexual, and or bisexual. So it doesn't matter. You can have a husband who's heterosexual, a wife who is homosexual, uh, but she has a but they have a bisexual partner that both of them are having sexual relationships with. And we could go into more detail, but that's, that's just how messed up things have gotten today. And furthermore, I was shocked to read that they estimate that between 4 to 5 percent of people in the United States are either polyamorous, meaning they're in those types of relationships, um, at least that's how they feel. They, they are polyamorous, meaning they will, they will be in relationships with any of those different types of people, or they're actually in a polyamorous relationship. Again, 4 to 5% of people in the United States fall within supposedly that category. Now, let's get back to polygamy. That simply shows you how far off people have drifted. Um, in the case of polygamy, we do find it being regulated. You don't find it being authorized, but you do find it being regulated by demanding that each wife would be treated equally. Listen to Exodus 21, verses 10 through 11, and this is very interesting. It says, if he take him another wife, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage, shall he not diminish. Right? 
Guys, that, first of all, that's not even possible. It is not possible to diminish her duty. Let's talk about her conjugal duty. Uh, and I'm, I'm just going to say, let's, let's say that a spouse has intimate relationship a couple times a week. Well, if you marry another spouse and, and that spouse is cutting into that, they're cutting into that duty. Uh, the same thing with food and so forth. How are you going to uh, provide for them without, without taking what was theirs away from them? Right? Let's go on. If he take him another wife, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage shall he not diminish. And if he do not these three unto her, then shall she go out free without money. All right, what's he saying? He's saying if she don't like this setup or if you're defrauding her in any way, she can choose to leave, right? Now, in most cases, it would be impossible uh, for a man to do as God has demanded here, especially if he was already in a healthy marriage. Uh, let me put it this way. If I brought home another wife, I can tell you right now, my wife would not be very happy. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't be able to do all of the things I currently do for my spouse uh, equally if I had two spouses. And let me say this, if my wife brought home a husband, uh, I wouldn't be very happy. Uh, he wouldn't make it past the threshold. So again, you've got a loophole here for the wife, if a husband, a Jewish husband, brings home another wife, you've got a way out of this if in any way he's defrauding you in these areas, right? Uh, the result would be the wife could leave the marriage if she chose, leaving the man with the other woman that he brought, right? The idea is, is a, a polygamous marriage would only exist if the first wife agreed and tolerated it. I don't think my wife would agree to and tolerate that, and I don't think many wives would. And so you probably, if you went back and we actually had the historical records, would find a number of marriages where men did bring in um, other wives for a polygamous relationship and the wives left. All right, I'm sure you would find that a lot. It wouldn't be any different then as it would today. Now, I'm sure today you'd have some women that might be accepting of that. And I'm sure back then you had women who were accepting of it too. So even though the practice of polygamy existed in the Old Testament, the practice clearly violated God's pattern for marriage. So again, you may say, well, then why was it tolerated? Or why did God even regulate it? I'm going to go over to Acts 17.30 through 31. I think this would help give the best answer. We don't really have as much information on this topic as I would like, but this one really does, I think, help. Notice what Paul told the Athenians, Acts 17.30 through 31. And the times of this ignorance God winked at. That it's not like God winked at as in he overlooked it, okay? And the times of this ignorance God overlooked, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Let me pause. That man's already told us what a marriage is to consist of, so we know for a fact polygamy and concubines are not authorized today. Right? We've already looked at the words of Jesus. That's the one he hath ordained whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him, the one he ordained, from the dead. Now in context, Paul declares to these Athenians here that there was a time when there was no revelation or there was limited revelation, and that caused an awful lot of people to be in darkness and to even do things that were not acceptable, right? The idea really was is that they just really didn't know, and so God overlooked a number of these things that were done out of ignorance. The point really would be this. God had made some allowances in the past because of the ignorance of mankind as a whole. Uh, and in some instances because they didn't have complete revelation of His will. 
But the time of God overlooking those faults is over. As a matter of fact, everybody today has access to the Word of God, and Christ's law applies to every single person today. And Jesus has caused every, every person since He has been, uh, since he has been alive and, and had His ministry, and we have the apostles then that came and taught the inspired Word after Him, and then we had the revealed Word recorded for us, since that point, man has had no excuse for sin. Listen to John 15, 22. Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. What's he saying? They know better now, or at least they should. Let me pause for a second and, and talk about people out in the world. You start talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. You talk about fornication. You talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. And oftentimes my response, at least in my mind, is... is they ought to know better, right? They have access to the same written word as I do. They should know what it is that God expects of them, which leads me to John 12, 48. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words, this is Jesus, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Now, it's interesting to go back and study on concubines and polygamy, although uh, we already know very clearly based off the word of, of Jesus as he went back to the beginning. That was never the intent for, for marriage, and it's not authorized today. Again, Matthew 19, 3 through 9. And so we know that that's not an acceptable practice today. Uh, but it doesn't just end there. Everything that is within uh, the New Testament is bound upon all men, whether they claim to be Christians or whether they do not claim to be Christians. And so as I draw this to a close, my concern is, is that you would have an idea of how to become a Christian. I, I would encourage anyone watching this, please go to the book of Acts, look at the conversion accounts. You'll find that there was somebody teaching them the gospel. That's how faith comes, Romans 10, 17. After they heard the gospel, for those who became Christians, they believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And you need to do that or you'll die in your sins, John 8, 24. They had faith, Hebrews eleven six. 6. They believed that Jesus was who He said He was. They believed that He would establish His one church, just as He said, Matthew 16, 18, and 19. They believed that He shed His blood for the remission of sins, Matthew 26, 28. Uh, and they had an understanding that they needed to deal with a sin problem that they had. Again, that's why He shed His blood was for the remission of sins. And they had sinned. So as Jesus has commanded, they were to repent of their sins, Luke 13, 3 and 5. They also needed to confess Christ, Romans 10, 9, and 10. And then they needed to be immersed in water for the remission of sins. Mark 16, 15, and 16, Jesus declares that. Peter teaches it's for the remission of sins in Acts 2, 38. And then when they had obeyed the gospel, and again, baptism was the culminating act in every conversion account. When they had obeyed the gospel, the Lord added them to the church, Acts 2, Verse 47. That's the easy parts, obeying the gospel. The hard parts, actually knowing the word we're going to be judged by, John 12, 48, and remaining faithful. Look up uh, Revelation 2, 10, uh, 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 through 8. As Christians, we need to know the word so that we can obey the word so that we can be righteous. Now, if you're watching this and you're not a Christian, please contact us. We'd love to study with you uh, or help you find someone in your local area that can study with you. If you're watching this and you're a Christian, again, let me encourage you. Look back throughout your week, uh, evaluate the things that you've done and the, the things that you've said, again, with the Word of God by which you're going to be judged, John 12, 48, 
If there's areas you've fallen short, I would encourage you to go ahead and repent of those. First uh, John 1, 7 through 9, continue to walk in the light and be faithful. And if there's any other way that we can help you as I draw this to a close, again, you can contact us here at the building. Uh, you can look us up on our website at portischurchofchrist.net. Uh, you could also find our phone number.